1: everybody. This is Luke Vander Linden, Vice President of Membership and Marketing at the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center. And this is the RHISAC podcast. Thanks for joining us once again, as we peer out our window for a look at cybersecurity in the retail and hospitality industries, brought to you twice a month via the CyberWire Network. Can we talk for a moment about third-party risk management? This is one of the two dozen or so working groups we facilitate here at the RHISAC. It's one of our more active groups, and it could cover a huge amount of territory. So from our cybersecurity perspective, it really focuses on subjects like how to work with other team members at your company to assess vendors and highlight which are the most susceptible to threats, as well as just how to understand inherent risk overall but also then how to implement security controls, develop an internet response plan for third parties, really how to build and run a third-party risk management program. The whole subject of third-party risk is fascinating because while you could do everything in the world to protect your own systems, because our businesses are so interconnected, we really have to look at that next layer and the one outside of that and the next one outside of that, like the layers of an onion to really protect ourselves and our businesses. Whether it's our technology vendors, or the suppliers of the goods and services we sell, or the systems that keep the lights on, or the HVAC running in the stores, or POS systems, there are not hundreds, but thousands of third parties to think about. Now, this isn't anything new to retailers or our members, of course, but the resilience of the entire retail ecosystem is something we're thinking a lot about right now at the RHISAC, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, too. Whether for use on the podcast with or without attribution, or just to have that conversation to better support our members and the sector. And we're interested in all perspectives, if you're from a retailer or from a consumer goods company or somewhere else in the ecosystem. We don't use this as much as we used to, but hashtag protect as one is how we make the whole retail ecosystem more resilient. We're all in this together, after all. So shoot me an email at podcast at to show your thoughts. Or if you're a member, find me on Slack or Member Exchange. Now. Why did I bring up the third-party risk management working group anyway? Well, at one of the working group's recent meetings, we featured a presentation by Cam Sabatini. He's a senior analyst of infosec planning and architecture at retailer Abercrombie & Fitch. Cam has built, or probably more accurately, is building Abercrombie's cyber risk quantification program, which can be a valuable tool for identifying the moving parts of a risk landscape, taking into account changing controls, attack trends, and loss data, to paint a picture of an organization's risk exposure without the need for your audience to have a technical understanding of the controls. It was such a good presentation that we asked Cam to come to the podcast and he graciously agreed. That being said, in the interest of that technical understanding I just mentioned, Cam will be joined by the RHI SAC's own Kristen Dalton. Kristen is the Director of Strategic Engagement, Research, and Analytics, and one of the many things she's responsible for is our working group's Like the third party risk management working group. Now, Kristen's no stranger to the podcast. She was last on back in January to discuss the results of our CISO and practitioner benchmark surveys, which she also oversees. Also, on this week's episode, we'll talk with Kevin Jackson. Kevin has had a long career in cybersecurity and as a CISO with experience in both the government and commercial sectors, including pharma, defense, manufacturing, finance, telecom, and academia. But Kevin is here to discuss the company he's founded, Level 6 Cybersecurity, one of the RHISAC's newest associate members, and their flagship service, the Level 6 InfoSec Strategy Network, which is a pretty cool tool that uses AI and a huge trove of globally sourced real-world data to analyze and determine which cybersecurity strategies yield the best outcomes. And finally, we'll be joined by the RHISAC's own cyber threat intel analyst and writer, Lee Clark, for... The Briefing, a roundup of the threats and trends we're seeing out there in the wild. So don't miss it. There is a lot going on. Now, let's get to it. We are back uh, with two very exciting guests. Uh, First of all, my colleague at the RHISAC, Kristen Dalton. She's our Director of Strategic Cyber Engagement Research and Analytics. And Kristen, you brought someone with you today.
0: Yes, we have Cam Sabatini, who is the Senior Analyst of Information Security Planning and Architecture with Abercrombie & Fitch. Welcome, Cam.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Excellent. Welcome to you both. So uh, what are we going to discuss today, Cam? I know you had a, a, a pretty successful presentation you gave to our Risk Management Working Group a little while back. Tell us more.
2: Yeah, so today I uh... I wanted to come in and talk about cyber risk quantification, which is a, a little passion project of mine. We talked about it with the Risk Management Working Group uh, about a month ago at this point point, had a, a really lively discussion. Uh, CRQ is essentially the practice of taking that traditional high, medium, and low risk rating that we apply to risk management uh, and taking it in a way that can be expressed numerically by turning uh, different factors into a loss scenario and displaying that loss exposure as dollars and cents. and uh, makes for a more effective way of communicating risk, in my opinion.
0: So Cam, I know we we did talk about this in the working group, um, and it has been a hot topic of discussion for our members, I would say, over the last couple months or so, and we've been dedicating more and more time to this topic. Um, But could you expand a little bit more around perhaps maybe why this is gaining so much traction um, and what the what the main purpose or overall goal is for some organizations who are uh, stepping into this CRQ space.
2: Yeah, I I definitely think it's gaining traction because just as an industry, we've gotten fed up with trying to rate things as red, yellow, green, or high, medium, or low. It doesn't get the point across and everyone you ask can define something differently. The main purpose of doing it this way, I, I think, is that there are multiple layers to it depending on how mature you are or what you're hoping to get out of it and how much you're willing to invest into it. I know there are some organizations out there that are using cyber risk quantification to make control purchasing decisions, taking it as a simple uh, cost of implementation or, uh, and uh, risk reduction equals X, so we invest or don't invest, or you use it to make uh, decisions on your cyber insurance policies. I'm not totally sure that we're as an industry there yet in terms of our, our faith and our uh, confidence in these numbers. Instead, where I think there is so much value in doing cyber risk quantification is it takes all of those different factors, whether they're internal controls, external risk factors, or even uh, changing cost magnitudes in the world, and breaks it into one cohesive scenario where you can talk to how things are changing over time. Uh, And it gives us a really good way to anchor our stakeholders in something that makes sense to them and be able to talk about some different things, what your security teams doing, what your tech teams are doing or even what's changing in the world, and be able to say that even though we might have gotten more mature in one space, we uh, are still seeing higher risk just because the world is an ever-changing place.
0: We we hear a lot of being able to translate and communicate that cyber risk into business risk, which sounds like is also uh, an objective or goal with CRQ. Um, and you had mentioned that you do work with internal stakeholders on the business side. Could you perhaps maybe talk more about the types of stakeholders or executives that you work with and or uh, report to with the CRQ program?
2: Yeah, so we typically report out on risk holistically uh, on a quarterly basis. And there's a wide range of stakeholders from board to audit committee, and then down to company execs, our finance partners, our internal audit partners, digital and tech leaders, and even uh, our internal security team to make sure we're all kind of aligned on how ANF is viewing cyber risk. It varies in how we communicate that out uh, depending on the setting, but we can get into that a little bit more later. When we report out those uh, risk reports, there are a couple ways that could be expressed, usually in smaller tidbits. So we're not saying we did a CRQ exercise and we point to that whole thing as what we report out. Instead, we'll take maybe a loss exceedance curve, which I think is a really valuable tool in showing your audience the most likely loss magnitude of a certain loss event or the worst case scenario and how those probabilities relate with one another. could be even something as simple as saying, we think there is an X percent chance that we experience a material incident in this kind of loss. Um, Or even, as I alluded to earlier, being able to track trends over time. So showing that in our cyber risk quantification program, we've realized that the regulatory fines in Europe for this kind of loss are going up. So being able to point to different bits and pieces that help uh, drive that message of what ANF is seeing as risk uh, overall.
0: Would you say that also touches on the methodology that you use behind CRQ? Um, and if there's any other anything else that you take into consideration uh, when working with these stakeholders and when reporting out?
2: yeah most definitely so uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about fair as the methodology behind cyber risk quantification factor analysis of information risk, and what that does is it takes all of those uh factors and in, into account the control strength the threat event frequency loss magnitude among others allows us to link those uh factors together mathematically uh usually in the the form of ranges and then we take those ranges and um would run some sort of monte carlo simulation that shows what those different losses look like in a given year over the course of thousands of years within the scenario by adding some degree of entropy that uh, allows us to randomly say where a loss either occurs or doesn't occur based on some of the probabilities we have uh, defined in controls and likelihood or the magnitude if that loss does occur based on the ranges of cost so it gives us a a good population of different scenarios that might have happened and of land on what is the distribution of that most likely case scenario or the worst case scenario
0: so what you what you described um, seems very complex in in certain ways you're looking at different parts of the business you're looking at different threats you're making you know connections between them and then also assessing you know like you said uh, the different levels of risk. How do companies typically Start or uh, you know how do they implement a CRq program um, and I don't know if you if you want to share a little bit about you know how this came to be for for Abercrombie um, and or advice that you might give to someone a company that is just starting out and thinking about cyber risk quantification
2: great question and what I think is most critical when you're trying to start out a CRq program is to be honest with what your goals are if you are trying to Uh, set out to make control purchasing decisions on day one, you're going to be set up for disappointment because you're just not going to get there early on. Instead, if you're just trying to structure stronger conversations around risk, I think the best way to do so is to start small and pick what maybe your stakeholders think of as those top three loss scenarios and really build out CRQ assessments around those loss scenarios. So you can talk to what controls you have in place to prevent those losses from occurring, what kinds of costs you would experience if you, if that loss were to become uh, an actual event and then continue to build out that program over time, you bring in more types of loss that uh, could occur. And then eventually as uh, if you were to get more confident in your numbers, then you could potentially see, that growth, where you start using it to make purchasing decisions, whether that's insurance or controls, and, and really grow the program there. Another thing that uh, is highly valuable too is to just talk to different people within your organization and figure out where they view risk and get their expert opinions on costs. As a risk analyst, you're not going to be the expert on what everything costs, whether internally or externally. So use those contracts you have in place. Use uh, to figure out what. Um, like forensic or recovery costs would look like. Use your internal experts to figure out how many customer records you have, or uh, what your productivity loss would be if a given system were go to go down, and really build out your cost ranges that way. It also helps. A uh, uh, shout out to Mark Tamalo who spoke on this uh, a couple weeks ago about just being able to use that process to. Build up buy-in for your CRQ program. So as you're talking about those numbers, there are people that have already contributed to that exercise that are in the room hearing it, and yet you have that buy-in.
1: You know, I think it's it's interesting that you talk about you know internal buy-in and who you work with internally. You know, we get we get invited the RHI SEC to speak uh, and attend some loss prevention or you know asset protection physical security conferences I uh, was at a one from FMI not too long ago which is the grocery store organization and a lot of these folks they're, they're using terms like total loss and things like that how often do you get into the physical world or this this crosses over into to physical loss as well
2: so that's a really hard jump to make I, I can't say I've been successful in doing that. And and I know a lot of times you you really struggle with scope creep in the CRQ landscape of where do you stop? What what kind of risk do you take into account? What kind don't you? A story very early on as we were trying to figure this out was we tried to figure out what's the cost associated with replacing laptops on a yearly basis. Because in theory, we should have good data of how many laptops we lose either due to actually being lost or physical breakage. And, it got to the point where we were trying to f- factor in so many degrees of entropy that it took up so much time for really something that, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that large of a risk based on how many laptops you're replacing and and the cost of those laptops. So, being able to try to set your sights, especially as you're starting out, on those top level risks and, and focusing your energy there is really key. And then breaking it out at an enterprise level gets uh, very difficult. Uh, just due to the vast number of factors that go into play there.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, in the working group um, we we did get a lot of discussion around it being so difficult to define what the actual scope of a CRQ program uh, should in, should include. Um, and Cam, to your point, like working with those business leaders to identify well, what are the, the critical risks? What are their top priorities? Have you have you received any feedback from the folks that you've worked with on the business side uh, in terms of the the impact or the value um, of of the data that you are providing them?
2: Yeah, I think the feedback is mostly around just it being a good way for us to break out what those top risks are to the business and talk about how they're changing. We're not at the point where it, it, philosophically we're making those purchasing decisions or um, really changing a ton of the ways we do business based off of these exercises. So it's really that value is we're talking the same language. We have things that can be trended over time uh, to point to from a a risk perspective.
1: Since you gave that presentation at the uh, working group, have you gotten any feedback from other companies other retailers and are are their programs similar like how are other companies building their their programs out similar to yours
2: yeah so uh have a a couple uh good conversations that are on the docket and uh hopefully can have an update for those later down the line but of talking to groups that are one way more mature than us and are trying to make those decisions of purchasing uh based off of their cyber risk quantification or even trying to change the way an organization weights risk based on the results of a risk quantification exercise, Uh, but also teams that are really trying to start out and being able to talk about what our philosophy is behind it and how we can shift that narrative from CRQ needs to be at that mature state to drive value versus that intermediate value that you can see pretty early on as you do just a couple uh, loss scenarios in your CRQ program.
0: And you may have mentioned this earlier, Cam, but um, the types of data that that typically go into calculating risk or assessing risk, could you perhaps talk more about that? And if there's data sources internally ver- versus externally or both um, that you're using to to make this assessment?
2: Yeah, would love to talk about this. One of the challenges that we face a lot and uh, trying to build out a a strong quantification program is how do you effectively uh, reflect your internal controls in a consistent method across different quantifications. I'll give a a shout out to the team at AlphaHive that I think is doing a really good job of this, of finding ways to map internal uh, assessments that you're already doing, whether it's at the uh, NIST CSF or the CIS critical security controls, and assigning some maturity scores to those controls that can be used in various exercises. So you're not trying to say we're 90% resistive to this kind of attack. Instead, we're taking the controls that are uh, relevant to that kind of attack and using the work that we've already done to assess our maturity to include those in the calculation. So we're consistent across different loss events. And then also we can trend those over time because we can point to an improvement in maturity in one control, uh, To a direct impact that it might have in a future state quantification scenario. Other things that we take into account, like those cost uh, factors, that's one thing where good partners are really critical, especially as you're starting out. It's really difficult to build out those loss tables with internal brain power and then also just some of that external cost data that you wouldn't have internally, like the cost of the data breach uh, reports that are out there, the Verizon Deber or Ponemon, but trying to figure out which of those costs actually apply to a given scenario, what are those ranges, and how does that interact with the size of your organization. So having a partner out there, uh, and there, there are plenty in the marketplace that can provide those lost, that, that lost data is really valuable. And those that control efficacy and the last magnitude are probably the two hardest ones to get right. Uh, and I'm excited to see where we're going as an industry and trying to manage those better.
0: Well, I don't know if I have any more questions, uh, um, but uh, Cam Cam, or, or Luke, is there anything that we should touch on that we haven't already talked about?
1: I guess for me, just like, you know, what, what do you see is coming up next and and uh, what what advice or anything else you want to Tell not only our—I mean—you had a great chance to talk to our member retailers at the working group, but uh, now that you have a kind of a larger audience here, and we might be picking up some listeners from non-member retailers. Any, any advice or words of wisdom for them?
2: Yeah. So where I see CRQ going in our industry is. Really getting better at standardizing how we reflect some of that control data and some of that cost data. So, continuing to see more and more orgs adopt this method of quantifying risk is only going to make us stronger. We're going to get better input data, both from marketplace forces of more orgs want to invest in this. So, there's going to be more maturity in the product space. And then also just standardization of talking about how different orgs measure their controls and having that kind of normalization across different orgs as you you build out your program. In terms of other pieces of advice, uh, I really just want to hit home that being realistic of what your expectations are with your program is really critical to being successful when you're starting out. I know a, a colleague of mine, Hayden and I, a couple years ago, really got in the weeds of trying to boil the ocean with our our CRQ program and and spun our wheels a lot as we were uh, trying to bring in every scenario and often found ourselves double dipping because we were trying to have that all encompassing version, uh, vision of risk at, uh, at our org. It becomes almost an insurmountable thing. So being able to be realistic with your expectations and starting small with a relatively limited scope, uh, I think is critical. The other thing, too, is that it's really difficult to bundle up all of your CRQ exercises to one organizational annual loss exposure. It's the same thing where you'll find yourself double-dipping and see a exorbitant annual loss exposure when you're trying to factor in all of those loss scenarios together. In practice, we don't see loss at kind of a snowball like that. So I'm a proponent, at least for what i want to use crq for of keeping it at the scenario level
1: well cam sabatini senior analyst of infosec planning and architecture at abercrombie and fitch thank you very much for coming on the rhisec podcast and Kristen dalton our very own uh Kristen, you run amongst other things our working group program how many working groups are we up to now
0: we have about 20 different working groups, um, and we have three different categories for them. So we've got domain-specific groups, such as risk management. Um, we've also got some tool-based groups and then special interest groups, depending on uh, where, what role you play in your organization and or what industry sector you're in. So lots of customization.
1: Yeah, and I know that you've been uh, particularly active with these groups, uh, putting them together recently. and. Generally, there are members only, but every once in a while, there's a conversation like this one uh, or a presentation like Cam gave that we can bring out uh, to our broader audience. So thanks very much for uh, bringing that to our attention, Kristen, and uh, keep up the good work. And Cam, thanks for joining us again. Thank you both. Now I'm joined by Kevin Jackson, the CEO of Level 6 Cybersecurity, and you're also the founder of Level 6 Cybersecurity. How are you? And welcome to the podcast.
3: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a great opportunity.
1: Excellent. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, your journey of founding this, uh, this company, uh, I guess a little bit about your background and what the need you saw for Level 6 to exist.
3: Okay. Well, my background comes from, as you can well imagine, in cybersecurity and compliance. Um, The majority of the 30 years that I've been in the industry has been focused on information systems, securing all sorts of enterprise architectures, and on managing compliance processes. I've had a uh, kind of a balanced career across some DOD and government uh, support environments earlier in my career with some more commercial and, and retail support here in the second half of my career. Um, and as I've been going through those different um, different environments, um, kind of moving along the chain of cybersecurity from, from more of an analyst and an architect up to becoming a cybersecurity manager and decision maker, uh, over the years, it became more and more obvious to me that there needs to be more support for the cyber decision makers, more support on the strategy side of the house in cybersecurity. And that's what led me to uh, to create our startup, Level 6 Cybersecurity, about a year ago now, um, to really try to make a tool that's going to bring benefit, bring support to the cyber decision maker and how they manage their cyber programs at the strategic level.
1: Oh, that's excellent. So so tell us a little bit about what Level 6 does for, I guess, re- for selfishly retail and hospitality organizations for us. But uh, assuming our members and listeners haven't heard of you, we'll just summarize what, what it is and what it does.
3: So um, our flagship product is called the Level 6 InfoSec Strategy Network which is L-I-S-N or LISTEN for short. And uh, it's easy to remember kind of what we're about because our tagline is we listen to the data. We're listening to the data in the entire world and getting uh, mining the data in the entire world for cyber strategy outcome and ROI information. Our, our, whole, our whole approach is about listening to real-world events, real-world outcomes, and correlating those with the cybersecurity strategies that real-world organizations have put in place, and then running the analytics. We're using an AI-powered analytic engine to find out what the correlations are between specific cyber strategy decisions and good and bad outcomes so that we can provide to our our network of members actual analytics on what works best in cybersecurity at the strategy level. So that's what we provide to the retail and hospitality industry and the other uh, other sectors we support is insight into what really works best in cybersecurity, especially considering limited resources of personnel and finances, which are baked into our model.
1: I love the acronym and I love the listen, because that's uh, that's a great descriptor of what, what it sounds like the product does. So what what kind of data are we talking, about? without giving out any secrets, what kind of data are we talking about and, and where do you get it?
3: Yes, yeah, so we actually mine data from all over the open sources on the internet is our first stop. There's so much information that's available, rather it's in news alerts, legal filings, breach analytics and postmortems, lots of information, increasingly more over the years as the entire globe leans more into, hey, if we share more about what we're doing and what's happened to us in cybersecurity, we all can learn more. Again, that's why we're so attracted to the, to the ISACs, to the RH ISAC in particular, about information sharing. Well, open sources have a ton of valuable content about cyber strategies that are really being used and about how they can be used to create true knowledge and wisdom for how to better design future strategies in cybersecurity. So open sources primarily, but we also use academia. And this is a piece that we feel is far too rarely leveraged in cybersecurity we go deep into the thousands of peer reviewed journal articles on cybersecurity that are produced every year and we mine from those as well because a lot of those are quantitative and qualitative real world situations that are analyzed to figure out what actually works best in cybersecurity so we bring that into our model as well and then again from our actual member organizations is the last piece we anonymously gather data from our member organizations To add to the mix of all of this data in a single global data warehouse that we then run our model on to analyze what works best for the cost in cybersecurity.
1: Wow, that's fascinating, and yeah, sure. With with more regulations and rulemaking about disclosure about events, there'll probably be, as you said, a growing amount of information. But the the academia part of things is fantastic because uh, I actually used to work in, in academic publishing, and there's it's, it's fascinating what's in there. Totally different industry, but uh, but fascinating that 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 stuff is out there uh, to be seen if you could just harness it.
3: You know, one part of my background that has kind of been parallel with cybersecurity has been in business intelligence and data analytics. I've been uh, teaching business intelligence classes at Villanova University for about the past five years, and that's where this kind of the the mixture came in as I I saw that there's all this data out there and there's all this capability that's now available to do high-end data analytics and AI-driven analytics especially, and yet no one was looking at the strategic data that's out there in cybersecurity to try to take advantage of it and run analytics on that type of data. So, absolutely, there's a lot there in the academic side from Villanova and from other organizations or other universities, a key piece of what we're doing to try to uh, to change the way that cyber strategies are engineered.
1: Right. Now, that's two times you've mentioned AI. Obviously, it's a hot, hot, hot topic now, just generally around the world, but also uh, in, in our sharing channels, our, our members are talking about it a lot. Could you go a little deeper on how uh, Listen uses AI to benefit decision makers that they use it?
3: Absolutely. So we actually use AI and machine learning within three different aspects of the Listen tool. First, on the input side, we are in the process here now of developing and advancing how we use machine learning and AI to help us gather more data more quickly from the open sources on the Internet and from academia. Uh, We we have a partnership with an AI firm that's helping us develop better and more efficient uh, data gathering, data analytics tools for mining all that information from the open internet and from social media sites and from conferences, any kind of data that's on the internet that relates to cyber strategy, we are using uh, ML-driven tools to bring that data in more efficiently and pre-rank it and categorize it to bring it into our data warehouse. And then on the output side, we're using uh, an AI engine to learn the trends and learn the output patterns that come out of our model. Uh, one of the key things about our model is uh, is producing an effectiveness score, a score that shows how well a given organization is leveraging their resources versus what all the others in their industry are doing. And by and by effectiveness, we're really looking at ROI. We're looking at bang for the buck of dollars and personnel that are being put in place implementing specific strategies. Well, our model gives an output that learns what cyber strategies are going to give the best bang for the buck in specific cyber domains, like incident response, identity and access management, vulnerability management, you name it. Well, our AI engine is learning those results as they get produced and is being trained on how those patterns emerge so that over time we're getting more and more insight from an AI on what it looks like and what the change patterns are like and what we can predict is going to be coming in the future. In cybersecurity in a given industry or sector. And then the last piece, and I'm happy to say this, everybody talks about chat GPT and all of that right now. Well, we were talking about that years ago before there was a chat GPT when it was only referred to as natural language query, natural language response technology. So we have in our roadmap, probably within months to a year from now, our output will be integrated with that chat GPT-like construct so that our users can simply interact with our data model in a very conversational way as opposed to having to you know be in a just a business intelligence portal they'll be able to ask listen questions and get direct responses and even get uh, alerts pushed to them from our listen tool when it's time to adjust their cyber strategy to optimize how they're protecting their organizations
1: oh wow yeah i was going to ask like with with this all this rich data how a user, your customer, or member, as you as you uh, talk about them, how they actually access all that data and what it looks like for them when they're trying to secure their organizations.
3: Right. And the, the primary way and where we are right now um, in our our beta version of Listen, which is going to be version 1.0, our first full live version in about four weeks, um, that is is through a self-service BI portal. It's very similar to a business intelligence portal that uh, that our customers are probably used to from their forecasting or from their sales team and finance, wherever it might be. Uh, except instead of being a financial business intelligence tool, it's a cyber strategy BI tool. But a lot of data visualizations to summarize and uh, make quickly quickly digestible views that give rankings, effectiveness scores, guidance recommendations on ways to change your current strategies that will give better outcomes based on real world data. So it's very much like a BI interface right now. But again, in the future, that'll be moving more and more towards this is a tool that can live on the phone and on the desktop of the CISOs in these different organizations where they have constant access to the live data that we're constantly collecting to learn what are the best strategies for them at any given moment.
1: Wow. So IR, vulnerability management, risk management, governance, compliance, how would you easily summarize what this tool is?
3: You know, it's that's almost an easier question than the others because what we really are is an umbrella tool above all of those cyber domains. We cover the strategies that organizations will need to put in place in their cyber risk management process, in their vulnerability management processes, in their policies, plans, and procedures management. Everything from the personnel and the operation side through the processes, through the tools and the characteristics of the different tools, we're gathering data at the strategy level on all of the above. So Listen is really a tool that helps you devise strategies for all aspects of your cybersecurity program. And therefore, it's kind of like an umbrella tool where you're giving guidance based on real-world data as opposed to on just one vendor or uh, uh, one consultant or even as, as broad as their history might be. Nothing beats having access to an entire global data pool in a given industry that's going to give recommendations in an objective way based on a data model that shows here's the optimal way to do and then fill in the blank. So all of those areas are included in how we're modeling uh, the cyber world.
1: It's absolutely fascinating and I'm um, glad we had the chance to talk about this. Level 6 Cybersecurity is one of our newest associate members of the RHI Sec. Uh, tell me, what, what, uh, what can our members do, or our listeners do to take the next steps or to learn more about it?
3: Uh, absolutely. Right now, again, we are as we move towards Listen Version One uh, we are trying to attract as many new members as possible to help us with the, the details of how we're producing everything from our user interface uh, to some of our new features we've integrated. We just released a new feature in our beta that maps cyber strategy to the MITRE Attack Framework, for example, so that we can show our members based on their cyber strategy where they are most likely have adversaries try to take advantage of them. So things like that, when it comes to how we deliver and how we uh, how we create reports, how our visualizations are designed, we are really looking for more and more feedback on all of those. So right now we're offering a large discount to all the RHISAC members, 60% off, in fact, of our, ma- our annual membership fee. Because really right now where we are as a startup, we are just thirsty for more information and feedback from the users. We've got several strong early adopters in place right now, but we're looking for more feedback. What would best benefit you as a CISO, as a information security director, uh, as that decision maker when it comes to using a tool like this?
1: Excellent. That's great. So it points not only to the benefit of being an RHI Sec member, but also to the benefit of getting in early. They can help craft uh, the usefulness of the product. It was great to meet you, Kevin. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and letting us know about Listen and Level 6 Cybersecurity. Uh, looking forward to following the progress uh, as, you're, as you move forward and, and hearing how it, how it
3: works. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the time.
4: Hi, everybody. This is Lee Clark, the CTI writer for the RHI Sec. I'm here for this month's The Briefing. Uh, The first story we've got for the month is uh, still a continuing story. We've got a few developments recently. This is on the ongoing campaign uh, hijacking the 3CX desktop app. Uh, Right. So on March 29th, at the very end of last month, uh, a bunch of cybersecurity firms started reporting that 3CX desktop app, uh, a voice-over-internet protocol, VOIP, VoIP, Uh, call routing software was being compromised in a supply chain attack. Now, multiple investigations originally identified that the app had been trojanized to deliver an information stealer, and uh, originally couple of outlets attributed this attack to the North Korean Lazarus group because of some things like uh, shared code and then eventually Kaspersky came out with a report uh, that said that they had seen the app delivering the GoParam backdoor which is a well-known Lazarus tool. So that started to really make it look like to the open community that the Lazarus Group was involved over time. Um, As soon as these reports started coming out, the 3CX CEO came out, confirmed that they had an ongoing incident, and publicly encouraged all users of their product to uninstall it and switch to the PWA client instead, which is the completely responsible thing uh, to do for the security of the community. Now, this tool, the 3CX desktop app, is widely used, right? I've seen estimates that say up to 600,000 individual customers use it, uh, more than 12 million daily users, some estimates. But then interestingly, uh, on April 11th, Mandiant released their initial analysis of what they had seen uh, with the supply chain attack. Uh, They were actually brought in by 3CX to do the investigation. And uh, they discovered a couple of specific malware uh, being used in the attack that led them to attribute uh, the ongoing incident to the North Korean threat group UNC-4736, which should not be Confused with the Lazarus group, and without editorializing, a quick analyst comment from the RHISEC is: uh, I would still, at this point, hesitate to fully assign a concrete certainty of attribution uh, for this attack. Yeah, we see some tools that overline with the Lazarus group. Yeah, we see some malware from Mandiant uh, that they attribute to UNC-4736. However, with the state of the uh, tool environment for modern threat actors, I would really hesitate to say just because we see tools from certain groups mean that those groups are involved. Tools spread, they leak, they get sold, they get built on and changed over time. Uh, new groups adopt them, groups dissolve, and then reuse their code later on for new uh, malware after they reform new groups. So even though we see a lot of this tool overlap, at this stage, until we get a little bit more information from Mandiant, I would caution listeners against fully assigning either Lazarus or UNC-4736 uh, at this stage of the investigation, right? The next report uh, I thought it would be prudent to talk about is uh, the FBI IC3-2022 Internet Crime Report, uh, which identified key business email compromise and ransomware trends. Business email compromise and ransomware are two of the leading threat trends that the RHISAC community sees in addition to the points that the FBI reported, right? Um, So if we go through some of the takeaways of the FBI report and sort of look at how they see this threat landscape over time, it doesn't look too different from the threat landscape that we monitor internally for the RHISAC, right? There are no real shocks here, over the last year, the IC3 received more than 800,000 complaints and logged nearly $10.3 billion in reported losses resulting from cybercrime incidents. Phishing was by far the most reported cybercrime type with over 300,000 reported incidents over the reporting period. Uh, That was followed by personal data breaches, uh, non-payment and delivery fraud, extortion, and tech support scams. All of these align with trends that the RHISAC community uh, faces and successfully defends again uh, regularly, right? Uh, Phishing is overwhelmingly um, the most common initial threat vector that we see, as well as multiple types of fraud uh, being of uh, high interest to our membership, right? So then the the big point of the report, uh, which we don't have internal metrics on that I can report publicly, is that the IC3 received a nearly 22,000 complaints related to business email compromises and estimated the adjusted losses related to those compromises to be over $2.7 billion. They noted a marked increase and the prevalence of BEC, they noted more sophisticated tactics, such as spoofing legitimate business phone numbers to try to confirm details of victims, and increased targeting of investment accounts. Uh, meaning, uh, they're not just trying to take over email account of executives; they're hoping to take over accounts uh, that have direct connection to financial investments, so they can actually manipulate those funds and, and extract them from their from their victims. Right. On the ransomware side, the IC3 received uh, more than 2,300 ransomware complaints, and they recorded losses of around $34.3 million. Now, that's still prevalent. It's still a, a large figure, but it's noticeably smaller uh, than both the prevalence overall and the monetary loss associated with business email compromise, right? Uh, for some of the community perspective on this. Uh, Commercial facilities reported a total of 58 ransomware incidents. Uh, Food and agriculture organizations reported 48 ransomware incidents. And transportation organizations reported 32 incidents. Uh, Lockbit and Blackcat were the two most prevalent ransomware types, uh, with Hive as a third. Now, major ransomware strains like Lockbit are routinely observed, stopped, and reported by the RHISAC. Intelligence community. So this FBI report pretty much corroborates the the internal metrics that we track for Arc. And if we get a little bit more granular, uh, we had a couple of interesting reports about new malware um, being reported by uh, leading security vendors. Right. In late March, Trend Micro researchers reported a new malware they dubbed OPC Jacker. It includes a couple of interesting capabilities uh, like key logging, taking screenshots, uh, pulling data directly from browsers, loading additional modules, and, of course, the ever-classic uh, replacing cryptocurrency addresses in the clipboard so you can just straight up uh, siphon the cryptocurrency from your victim into your own account, right? Um, obviously the key metric here is financial gain right that's that's the key motivation uh, for this uh, particular malware. And Trend Micro actually assessed that the malware is probably still in development and testing stage because they discovered a whole lot of test IDs in the samples that they analyzed. So this is a cryptojacker that we may see emerge uh, stronger, more developed, more sophisticated, and we may see it grow in prevalence uh, over time, depending on the capabilities of the threat actors. Uh, the next one would be the Miss Bandu Bank Trojan campaign. Uh, towards the end of March, Metabase Q Security reported the technical details of about 20 different campaigns targeting organizations in Chile, Mexico, Peru, Portugal, uh, with a new banking Trojan that they named Miss Bandu. Now, according to the report, Uh, The campaign attempts to steal credentials from users who are trying to access uh, banking services, educational services, social media, specifically gaming and e-commerce online portals, as well as public repositories and Outlook email credentials. It looks like in these campaigns, the threat actors are compromising legitimate websites, to leverage for the command and control infrastructure, and they've got automated payload building processes for rapid delivery. Uh, There are a couple of new features being developed for this as the campaigns go on, like uh, fake certificates to obfuscate the initial stage of the malware, new net-based backdoors enabled to take screenshots or even fake uh, windows for the victim, and finally a new Rust-based backdoor, uh, and Rust is still not particularly well handled by a lot of endpoint uh, protection softwares. Right, and then the last sort of uh, interesting. Granular campaign that we saw was on uh, Winter Wyvern. This is a cyber espionage campaign targeting telecom and government organizations, right? Uh, this was reported by Sentinel Labs. Uh, they've discovered uh, a number of campaigns against government and telecom companies. They Particularly note that winter wyvern activities uh, align closely with the Belarusian and Russian government interests. Uh, this report that Sentinel Labs put out uh, is also actively reported by the Polish CBZC and then the Ukrainian CERT. Um, so far, the group has targeted organizations in Lithuania, India, the Vatican, and Slovakia, so both uh, the EU and parts of the, uh, the Asian region right the group appears to be targeting organizations that have publicly supported Ukraine during the ongoing uh, war right um, either telecommunications organizations that have made public statements in support or have actually provided uh, material support in the in the form of say satellite communications um, to the uh, Ukrainian government According to Sentinel Labs' reports, uh, Winter Wyvern leverages phishing sites, uh, credential phishing, and malicious documents that are tailored uh, as lures for targeted organizations. Then after they're infected, they deploy custom loaders that enable remote access for data exfiltration. So uh, a pretty standard cyber espionage campaign aligning with Belarusian and and Russian government interests is, is what Sentinel Labs basically assesses, right? Then the final report for the briefing this month that I would highlight would be uh, a recent ESG report outlining challenges in cyber threat intelligence for cyber executives. Um, according to this report, about 95% of enterprise organizations, that being those with more than 1,000 employees, have some kind of threat intelligence budget, and about 98% and in- plan to increase their spending on threat intelligence over the next year. They surveyed around 380 cybersecurity professionals and organizations in the U.S. and Canada with knowledge of or participation in their organization's CTI programs and had a couple of interesting key takeaways, right? Uh, So 85% of security professionals believed that their CTI program had too many manual processes and needed more automation to be effective, 82% of those professionals believed that their CTI programs were treated as academic exercises and that lessons learned from CTI operations are not being effectively integrated into decision-making within the organizations. 72% believe that it's hard to sort through CTI noise to find what's relevant for their uh, organizations. It's an age-old problem in intelligence, right? Signal from noise. Uh, 71% of professionals said it was difficult for their organizations to measure return on investment for CTI programs. Now, this is also a a textbook problem uh, with CTI um, in that, You can't assign a dollar amount to how many intrusions did not happen as a result of the preventative measures and defensive operations that cyber threat intelligence enables, right? And you don't get a dollar amount for that. And then the last one would be that 63% of security professionals said that their organizations are not correctly staffed to manage their appropriate CTI programs. 63% report a skills and staffing deficit for being able to effectively manage the cybersecurity of their programs. So interesting statistics uh, about the challenges that are facing the community.
1: Excellent. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Lee. You know, um, that last report, it's interesting. If I recall, our 2022 CISO and practitioner benchmark reports touched on some of those same subjects, didn't they?
4: Yeah. uh, So in trying to take a a pulse of our community's uh, preparedness and their sense of their own uh, organization's cybersecurity health, um, our research team puts out uh, both a CISO and a practitioner benchmark that Luke mentions, right? And we get some key statistics from that that are interesting when you look at the ESG report. 66%. Of our member analysts report CTI as a key job function. 18% of them ranked their skills as beginner level, 34% ranked their skills as intermediate, and 28% ranked their skills as advanced, uh, with 14% saying that they were experts at CTI. Uh, 66% of analysts identified understaffing Uh, as a key challenge to their job effectiveness uh, compared to the 63% found in the ESG report. Overtasking, uh, lack of environmental visibility, and inadequate tool sets uh, were also key challenges that member analysts identified in the practitioner benchmark. Uh, 93% of our practitioners felt that they had the necessary skill sets they needed, and more than 80 of them believed that their teams also had the necessary skill sets to effectively protect critical assets and information in their organizations. Uh, 87% of practitioners said that their organizations allowed them to develop their skill sets uh, over time. That's in the form of continuing education, uh, certifications, uh, skills training, things of that nature. And then 26% of practitioners said that threat intelligence uh, was a top organizational risk, and 7% of them identified threat intelligence as a top initiative. So that's from the grunt level, right? That's from the frontline perspective of our members, right, from the practitioner benchmark, which contrasts and compares, interesting, a little bit to how the ESG report reports uh, what CISOs see, right? So, as Luke mentioned, we also put out the CISO benchmark, and from that we identify a couple of interesting comparisons. For instance, uh, CISOs outline CTI as the fourth priority in their responsibilities. Uh, so, it's, it's lower on their list of the most important things that they're tasked with by their board of directors. Uh, it came behind security operations, vulnerability, vulnerability management, and security awareness. Uh, all of those uh, were ranked as higher priorities than managing their CTI. And then, um, threat intelligence also was reported by the CISO benchmark. Report as one of the top most outsourced capabilities, uh, with between around thirty-eight percent of our respondents saying they actually outsource their CTI capability rather than uh, run it in-house.
1: Right. Interesting. So a uh, little little compare and contrast there between our own survey and that from ESG. Uh, now you linked the ESG report in the member exchange. Uh, if anybody wants to see the whole thing, and I th- and our CISO and practitioner benchmarks are there as well
4: as well as uh, TLP clear versions of the CISO and practitioner benchmarks uh, included on our blog on the SEC website. If non-members are interested in getting a redacted look at some of the key metrics, and that could help spur them. Excellent. We also had um, a, a segment of an earlier episode of our
1: podcast on, on the findings of those reports as well. So lots of information out there. Lee Clark, Thank you very much for joining us, our own uh, cyber threat intelligence analyst and writer. Thank you, as always, for the briefing.
4: Thanks for having me, Luke.
1: If you haven't already, you should check out that episode from back in January on the CISO and Practitioner Benchmark reports. Lots of good data and interesting insights in there. But... That'll do it for me and another episode of the RHI podcast. I want to thank Lee and Kristen and all the guests, Kevin Jackson from Level 6 Cybersecurity and Cam Sabatini from Abercrombie & Fitch. And as always, thank you to our own production team at the RHI SAC, Annie Chambliss and Marisa Trushinecki, and for making us sound good the folks at CyberWire, our senior producer Jennifer Iben and the sound team of Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester. This episode and all of our past episodes can be found at thecyberwire.com or wherever you listen to high-quality podcasts like ours. Once again, if you have anything you want to say to us, any grievances you want to air, shoot us an email at podcast at rhisac.org. We'll have a new episode in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, stay safe out
3: there.